0: Always remember that some people need to be dragged into the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. (laughs) It's part of the deal. This is the second Sunday of Easter, and every second Sunday of Easter we read the gospel where Thomas says he's not going to believe unless he can put his hands His fingers in the holes and his hand in the side. And it introduces into the whole triumph of the resurrection and all of the things, the element of doubt. So in my sermon today, what I'm going to talk about are maybe too many things. But first, I want to say some things about what I said on Easter. Some ways of thinking about both the Easter season and the liturgical year generally in the Episcopal Church... We're a liturgical church, which means our worship animates and informs what we believe. To say some things to you about uh, the overweening skepticism that we seem to have in our culture at present, not just doubt, but kind of a knee-jerk hostility to any kind of faith and belief, and to focus it principally in the issue about creationism and evolution. And then to say some things to you about the gospel proper, which focus our attention on two aspects of the Christian faith, of, faith and life in which we participate on a daily basis. The ministry of reconciliation and the power of forgiveness and how we understand the process of coming to believe. Episcopalians have a resource that they have used since the Elizabethan period for determining what is authoritative in their understanding of the Church's faith and belief. And we call it the three-legged stool. The Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the Tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And so all of the deep things of Christian faith and belief in some way are subjected to this standard, this authoritative rule uh, to see how it is we can understand and appropriate and make part of our own personal history the deep things of Christian faith and belief. On Easter I mentioned that at the liturgy proper all those things are present to us each time we come together for public prayer and public worship. But I'm using also this year Father Thomas Keating, one of my great heroes of the spiritual life, who talks about three important theological ideas that you uh, are uh, confronted with, if that's the right term, each time you come to public worship. The light of God, the life of God, and the love of God. And we'll see now how this, I hope, bears on the discussion of faith and belief and doubt when we understand that the light of God is the wisdom that you and I acquire over time, the practical wisdom, the ability to cope and to rise to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us. To be able to understand that wisdom is the accumulated experience each of us has gained in responding to the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. This, of course, is making the assumption that all of us can and will learn from our experience. And it is one of the great difficulties in, I hate to use this term, dysfunctional relationships that sometimes one or more of the members do not learn by experience. You know, you've heard the recovery movement say that the definition of insanity is doing something the same thing, the same way every time and expecting different results. So, somehow we learn from our experience the light of God has the potential in every human heart to bring to bear the possibility that we gain and can use the wisdom that God presents to us on a daily basis. The life of God is the power of God. And we just celebrated the ways and the means by which we understand the life of God, which is the empowerment of God's Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, And it is what we receive at our baptism, God's life in the Holy Spirit. It is an infusion of the power of God's light, of God's life, and God's love. And so we celebrate in Easter and at every liturgy that potentiality. And finally, the love of God is the celebration of the possibility of being transformed and that God's transforming love and power is available to us on a regular basis. So God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness is part of how we understand the Christian faith and life. This is at odds, by the way, with a lot of popular versions of Christianity these days, which is to save you from something as opposed to saving you to something which is what I think Episcopalians are all about. There have been over the last three or four years a number of very uh, strident books, they're rants, really, uh, about the perniciousness of religion, the perniciousness of faith and belief, and why any sensible human being would want to engage in this kind of activity is beyond the ken of the authors of these books. They simply cannot understand why that is so. They are still puzzled at what the sociologist Peter Berger said many years ago at the persistence of religion. And nowhere is this more prevalent than in the conversations about creationism and evolution and other kinds of things. Dean Alan Jones, the recently retired Dean of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, wrote a book about two or three years ago called Reimagining Christianity, How to Reconnect Your Faith Without Disconnecting Your Mind. And in a chapter that he wrote about science and religion, he said these things. This is particularly talking in this case about creationism and evolution. The creationist wants to talk about meaning and gets it confused with science. The evolutionist wants to talk about science and can't help sneering at religion. Many biologists seem to think that the theory of evolution, revised or otherwise, denies the possibility of design and and that order point to the possibility of God. The creationists respond negatively, and neither side understands the other. I have to confess that until recently, I wasn't really aware of the reductionist assumptions of the evolutionist establishment. I'd always had a benign view of scientists, so I'm surprised to find myself thinking that creationists have a point, not a scientific one but a theological one. Scientists as scientists have no business affirming or denying purpose in the universe. And people of faith err when they come to scientific conclusions based on creedal or biblical texts. My experience with scientists is they are not so much arrogant as ignorant of how to play the game of theology. Some think it's a game so silly that it's not worth playing, yet they cannot help but dabble in the meaning to which science points. Some of you may have heard of Stephen J. Gould. He died a few years ago. He was a great evolutionist and he was a paleontologist. He, he, he did uh, stud- studies of evolution from the fossil record. And in a conversation he had with some interviewer, he said this, You know, the more I do my science, the more I do the work that I do, the more I have come to the conclusion that the universe has absolutely no meaning at all. It's just here. There is no purpose. But that is not my place to say The science that I do does not deliver up to me any purpose, but that's not its purpose anyway. Would that more scientists who were not believers would have that species of humility when they came to the conversation about faith and belief. Episcopalians don't like either-or thinking. They like both-and thinking. So we've never had any difficulty with evolution. I suppose in the fever swamps of the back of beyond, there are some Episcopalians who are creationists, but not very many. So what we're concerned about here is both and, that the theory of evolution is not incompatible with the deep things of Christian faith and belief. We read from the Gospel today from John and the story of Thomas, it's famous. But before we talk about that, something happens. We have what is known in biblical scholarship as a resurrection appearance. Jesus comes into a room with the apostles. And he breathes on them, which is the ancient Near East form of giving you their spirit. And he gives them the power to forgive sins. The technical term in the tradition with a capital T is the power of the keys. And in all four of the Gospels, Jesus bestows the power of the keys on the Apostles. In some accounts, it's Peter that gets the keys, but in most of them, it's everybody. The fact that Peter did get the keys in one account, as you know, may account also for a lot of 2,000 years of Christian history. In any case... He speaks to them about their participation in the Ministry of Reconciliation. In our Book of Common Prayer on page 855 in the Catechism, there's a question. What is the mission of the Church? Answer! The mission of the Church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. So you and I are to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation as central to our understanding of where we commend people to our greatest place of safety and assurance. And so in this biblical text on the second Sunday of Easter, you and I are given our marching orders and you need to be a minister of reconciliation. You know, this is a sacramental church. Episcopalians have seven sacraments. And we have the sacrament of reconciliation, confession, that the clergy are there to do sacramentally. But all Christian people are called to the ministry of reconciliation. And this gospel is the affirmation to the importance of each of your roles in the bringing the reconciling power of God's light, life, and love to everything that you touch. And so the first part of today's gospel affirms that great and powerful truth. Then we have Thomas, who comes and says, i, I missed him the first time, so I'm not going to believe that he's really here. Jesus, I was telling, I, this dates me, there was a movie many, many years ago uh, called Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machine. And Terry Thomas plays one of the aeronauts, or whatever they called him, who was unscrupulous and wanted to damage the planes of all the others in the race across the, the channel, the British Channel. So he gets his manservant to file the ailerons, or whatever you call them, or to sabotage the planes. And he lets his manservant watch as they take off and crash. And finally he comes up to him and says he has something else for him to do. And he said, I let you stay and watch this, but don't think you'll be getting little treats like this all the time. So Thomas got a little treat, which was to see the risen Savior and to actually get some uh, sense verification of the risen Christ. Jesus mildly rebukes Thomas, and he said, do you believe... Because you have seen me, blessed are those who have come to believe and have not seen. And that's you and me. So much is true about so much of how we come to the world. Maybe as we live we we learn that there are some things that we had faith in and other things that uh, we... we, uh, don't have anymore and have faith in other things as the result of, we hope, growing in the Spirit. So when we talk about faith and belief, it is important for us to understand that God's power is always there to increase your ability to have faith and to know the truth of God. I I had a friend Who said to me one time, uh, you know, when he was about ready to go and do something that he knew he really shouldn't be doing? If he got in the car and drove to where he was going to do this, and he had all green lights, he thought, well, maybe this isn't so bad after all, and it's okay for me to do. Okay? Now, people have faith in that kind of stuff all the time. Remember, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. And you and I live our lives on a regular basis with having to have faith in a lot of things about which we have no certainty at all. And in fact, have become at times in our life sick or crazy because we wanted the certainty that we cannot have. And so this gospel is about coming to believe. In the assignment for this week, I want you to think about how you can be a minister of reconciliation in your life and in your relationships. And think about your process of coming to believe. And know that when you do, you have always with you God's unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love. Amen.